0: I'd like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in Nehemiah chapter 7. I'd also like to encourage you not to read ahead in Nehemiah chapter 7, lest you be defeated before we even begin. Because there are a lot of names in Nehemiah chapter 7 that are hard to pronounce and a lot of numbers in there. And you are immediately going to think this is a good time for a nap, but it is not. There is much that is in this passage of Scripture that is relevant For each of us and it helps us right where we live. Have you ever struggled with feelings that your life may not be worthwhile? What I mean by that is I think we all feel that way at times that I'm living my life and I wonder does it really matter? I don't necessarily mean will I be remembered but is my daily life, my energy, My effort, my time, my gifts, my talents, my finances. Am I using it in such a way so that it actually matters? If you look at the world, you really won't get that answer. I love what one author penned. He said, there is little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent in our culture. He wrote, we have celebrities but not saints. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness ever gets headlines. If, on the other hand, we look around for what it means to be a person of integrity, we don't find much, those people aren't easy to pick out. No journalist ever interviews them, no talk shows feature them, they're not admired, they're not looked up to, they don't set trends, there is no cash value in them. No Oscars are given for integrity, and at year's end, no one compiles a list of the ten best lived lives. And that's fact. The reality is such that most of the things that are worthwhile to do, our world does not notice. And what I believe has occurred is that mentality has crept inside the church and those noteworthy, worthwhile things that actually matter aren't admired or sought after as they should be. Again, as one pastor was studying, he said, Think about it. When was the last time you watched a movie and hung around to study the credits as they rolled by. If you have, you're in a small group of people. But you might think to yourself, I really enjoyed the musical score. I'm going to sit here and find out who was in charge of the music. I really want to know who the old lady behind the counter in that small town was. I am very interested in who standby number three was in this one scene. The truth is most of us see those names go up and we walk away because the show's over. We're not really concerned about everything that went into the show. But as we arrive at Nehemiah chapter 7, what we're going to find is the walls are built, the gates are set, in effect, the show's over. But in a very real way, we're rolling the credits. And the list of names is long as I referenced, and a lot of it's unpronounceable. And you might be tempted to simply move on. But I think contained within these verses are some biblical principles and a real truth lived out by these individuals that teach us how we can live our lives in such a way so that it counts for God. And I want you to realize this as a student of the Bible. Largely from verses 6 to 73, it is a repeat of Ezra chapter 2. Now that stands out because we might be prone to think, why would God put this in the Bible for a second time? But I believe we should say this, God never repeats himself accidentally. There is something in here for us. And though these names may not mean anything to us, the fact is they mean much to God. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 7, and I, I won't beat you to death with it, but I want to read the first three verses just to set the tone. Now it came to pass, when the wall was built, and I, that is Nehemiah, had set up the doors, and the porters, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man, and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch, and everyone to be over against his house. The reality is, Nehemiah is beginning to set order and structure to the city of Jerusalem. The walls are built, and he says, I put porters, those are gatekeepers at the gates, and I set up the singers, and I even selected the rulers to help govern the city of Jerusalem. And then he communicates that data to the gatekeepers about how they should do it. Things are beginning to gain some structure in the city of Jerusalem. You see, we learned some names in there, and many more are yet to come, because the Bible is a book about people. And the fact is, people matter to God. And this chapter tells us that though God used these people to build this wall, He also used the wall to build these people. And to us they are merely names and numbers, but to God they are individuals who joined into His work. As I read those first couple of verses, we noticed that these individuals are picked out. And we saw placed in there in verse 1, it came to pass, the walls built, that he placed the porters and the singers at the door. Now I want you to listen just for a second as I jump ahead to chapter 11, verses 22 to 23. The overseer also of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzai the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph. See what I mean? Don't read ahead, you'll get defeated. Of the sons of Asaph, the singers were over the business of the house of God, for it was the king's commandment concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers due for every day. There are names associated with the post of singing. And it is vital for us to understand that for years, these individual people had been in exile. And for more than a century, they had lived away from the promised land, away from the city of Jerusalem. In fact, much of the truth that they would sing about was no longer relevant to them because they had been in bondage for so long. The psalmist tells us in the 137th Psalm that they sat down and wept by the rivers of Babylon because there was nothing to praise, nothing to worship. He even paints this very vivid image to us when he says, we took our harps and we hung them in the willow trees. Meaning, we sat down, and because we were in bondage, we stopped singing. But now they are back home. But now the walls have been rebuilt. But now God's promises have been fulfilled, and they're back in the city of Jerusalem, and Nehemiah wants them to know how to worship and to sing again. It is intriguing to me that as you jump up to chapter 12 and verse 43, you note this. At the dedication of the walls of the temple, Nehemiah assigned a choir to stand up on the wall on one side and to walk one direction with musicians singing. He placed another choir on the other side and they walked the other direction with musicians singing, surrounding the city of Jerusalem literally in surround sound worship and praise and thanks. And I want you to listen to this assessment from chapter 12 and verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard, even afar off. So loud was the praise and worship, that those that were way away from the city heard it. Eight times in the book of Nehemiah, we reference giving thanks to God. And at this moment in time, we are at the conclusion of the captivity. We are seeing a victorious moment with the completion of the walls, and Nehemiah wants us to see the singers are in place. But not only the singers, we note the gatekeepers are there. Here, they're called porters. Again, let me just jump ahead to chapter 11, which mirrors this. It's some of the particular assignments that were doled out. Verse 19, we read more over the portives. Porters, Akab and Talmon and their brethren that kept the gates were 172. You have no idea who Akab is, I'd venture to say. You have no idea who Talmon is. 172 guys responsible for being gatekeepers for the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And we cannot conjure up an image to put with the name. But for Nehemiah, they had a name and a face, and to God, they had a post and a place. And I know that Acab and Talmud had the responsibility of being gatekeepers, and all of us are aware that the security of the wall is only as good as the integrity of the gatekeepers. And he took the time to even outline how they should do their job. And if you walked up to Acab and you walked up to Talmud and you asked them, what is your responsibility here in the city of Jerusalem? To open the gates. And then what? To close the gates. And then what? To lock the gates. What Nehemiah is getting us to see is it takes people to make the place work. Not only were there singers, and not only were there gatekeepers, he talks to us about the rulers of the city. Did you note that in verse 2, he said, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem? Nehemiah needed help to govern the affairs of the city. Nehemiah needed help to oversee all that would go on in the city of Jerusalem and at the temple where worship would take place. Do you at this point in time look for people who have government experience? Do you look at this point in time for people who are winsome and eloquent and have charisma and great personality? Do you look for people who are good in sales because we need inhabitants in Jerusalem? No. The fact is the roots for the revival that will come in Nehemiah 8 and the repentance that will come in Nehemiah chapter 9 are laid here because he says, I looked for those who were faithful and feared God. When you note the roots of revival that are about to come, you will see that it was because the individuals that were involved were faithful men who feared God. Those inner qualities that you don't see on the outside. Now I want you to get with me in verse 8. And I will pain you for just a moment. Because I want you to see how explicit this is. In verse 8 we start to note that he's registering the citizens. The children of Perash hundred seventy and two, The children of Shephatiah 370 and 2. The children of Ara; 650 and 2. The children of Pahath Moab, of the children of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The children of Elam, 1,254. And now you know why we're not going to read all the way to verse 63. Isn't it noteworthy that he is naming their families out, and he is numbering them very carefully. Why would he so painstakingly name out the people that are being ruled by Nehemiah, Hananiah, and Hananiah? Why would he count them so carefully? The fact is because they counted to God. These are the people who made it possible to rebuild the wall in 52 days. These were the people who stepped out on faith and courage to the promises that God had laid out for them. It is for us to realize that if anyone cares about the credits when they roll, it is God Himself because He is the author of the credits. God cares about each of these individuals. We know the priests arrive. I think it is intriguing to realize the priests had a very important spot. Keep in mind, as I referenced earlier, these individuals had been in exile. Or they were born to parents who were in exile. And they were not just rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem so that people would move back. They were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem so they could get back to the temple system. So they could get back to the sacrifice system, which brought God honor and glory. And so he brings along the priests. Because the people, and I don't mean this ugly, they were ignorant. They had been without the temple. They had been without the sacrifices. They didn't know very much about keeping the law. And in chapter 8, which we will be in next week, and so I'll really wet your appetite with these awesome, resounding verses. That's humor. It's just Bible work. We're studying together verse 7 of chapter 8. They'll be here on the screen. And you can't miss this. This is some of the most important scripture that you will ever come across. Also, Jeshua and Bani, and Cherubiah, Jamin, Aqab, but not Aqab the gatekeeper, Aqab the priest, Shabbathai, Hodijah, Maesiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jehozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. You say, that's life-changing. I mean, we could have an altar call now, and your life would be ever altered because of that truth. Why are you making us read these names? Not just the names. Note the responsibility. They caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they, the names that we just read, read in the book of the law of God distinctly. And gave the sense. And caused them to understand the reading. Nehemiah wanted the people, God wanted the people to experience more than the safety of the walls. He wanted them to experience the blessing of God that coincided their obedience to the word of God. And so at this moment in time, the priest, and he named them, stand up. And they begin to declare unto the people all of the temple system and the law of God. And that is really hard to understand. What is a heave offering? What is a wave offering? What is a drink offering? What is hyssop? why are we putting blood here? Why are we sprinkling blood there? And they would distinctly read from the law of God. And then they would give the sense of it. And then they would help the people to understand it. And what I derive from that is as they tried to give sense, people had questions, they would answer the questions. Everybody is doing their job. Everybody is filling their role. Everybody is doing what they are supposed to and expected to do. Now there's something important and I realize this. My wife has told me, sometimes. You will tell people something is interesting, but it's only interesting to you. This is probably one of those moments. But I want you to notice something in verse 61. Now, Nehemiah is registering the citizens. This is important work. They're carrying out the government duties here. And these were they which went up also from Telmela, tel Cherub, Adon, and Immer, But they could not show their father's house, nor their seed, whether they were of Israel. The children of Deliah, the children of Tobiah, the children of Nakoda, 640 and 2, and of the priests, now that's important, the children of Habiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzali the Gileadite to wife and was called after their name. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. Now here's what we have to understand. It wasn't just registering names. They wanted people to live in the city of Jerusalem who should be in the city of Jerusalem, who had the genealogy and the registration that could prove that they could be there. And we note that God had set aside the tribe of Levi so that they could be priests. And people came and wanted to be priests. And they would do the registration work and they would go through their ancestral registration and if they could not locate or they could not prove that they were of the tribe of Levi, they would exclude them from the office of the priest. Again, not for the sake of exclusivity but in accordance with the law of God so that they might hid that revival and they might have the blessing of God that coincided obedience. What I'm saying is God takes this very seriously. God places us, and He positions us, and He expects that we will do what He has gifted us to do. We have seen the singers, and we have seen the gatekeepers, and we have seen the rulers. We have seen the priests, and now we'll note just some guys who gave. Verse 70 and 71 have... Perhaps the saddest word in all of the chapter. It's in there twice. Once in verse 70 and once in verse 71. We read this. And some of the chief of the fathers gave unto the work. The Tirshatha gave to the treasure a thousand drams of gold, 50 basins, 530 priests' garments. Verse 71. And some of the chief of the fathers gave to the treasure of the work 20,000 drams of gold and 2,200 pounds of silver. The sad word that I see in there is some. In verse 70, some of the chief of the fathers. And in verse 71, some of the chief of the fathers. The fact is all of them should have given. The work of the temple needed to go forward, and it was a cold start. They did not have what was necessary to carry on the work of the temple. And so some that were able to give, gave to the temple so that it could get going. All of them should have, only some of them did. But the fact is this, maybe these givers couldn't be gatekeepers. And perhaps the gatekeepers couldn't be singers. And not everybody could be a ruler, and not everybody could be a priest. And some of them were unable to give, but everybody is doing their part. And I also want to wrap up in this giving. A problem arrives back in verse 4 of chapter 7. It's a little verse. It's just tucked in there. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not built. Now we've rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. But there's not a lot of people living in Jerusalem. We've rebuilt the walls, but we haven't rebuilt the houses. And if you remember as a student of this book, when Nehemiah first arrived, the city was in shambles. Rubble was everywhere. It was charred and it was burned and it was broken down. So much so that when he circled the city on his beast, it was hard at times even to pass through all the trash that was on the ground. And so though now the walls are builded, there aren't a lot of people living in Jerusalem and we need people to come in and live in Jerusalem because 400 years forward from this time, Jesus Christ himself on Palm Sunday is going to ride into the city of Jerusalem and hundreds of thousands of people are going to gather around the temple and around this holy city and they are going to chant, Oh Hosanna, this man of salvation has come. But in order for us to have that Jerusalem, we have to repair this Jerusalem. How do we get people to move into Jerusalem? And I could correlate it to perhaps places that people don't want to live. I want to be careful to do that. How do we get people here? They had an incredible solution. Chapter 11 in verse 1 tells us this. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of the ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. So what they did was they drafted people. They cast lots. In effect, maybe they took straws and they said, whoever draws the short straw is coming into Jerusalem. The other nine of you get to live in the other cities. But in verse 2 of chapter 11, I note something that is significant. It says, and the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Why would they bless all those that willingly offered to dwell at Jerusalem? Because it was blessworthy. Because it wasn't easy. You are now asking somebody to uproot their life from the countryside. You are asking somebody to uproot their structure, to move away from their relatives, to move away from their family, to take a step of faith to come into a city that is completely rubble, to move away from what they have established into a place where they will have to build from scratch a new life. And the Bible's using that word offered, and it is important because it means to be compelled to be courageous. It was something noble. They were willing to give of themselves. They were willing to uproot their life. They were willing to change everything to come in and help this ragtag group of misfit people complete the work that God had given them to do. They were givers. I think it is also noteworthy that among all of the noble ones, there's special mention of a man named Mataniah. He doesn't show up until chapter 11, verse 17. And these Chapters are kind of sister chapters. But we read this in chapter 11, verse 17. And Mattaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, was the principal to begin the thanksgiving in prayer. And maybe my favorite name in all of it is Bakpakiah. It's just a good one. The second among his brethren. And Abda, the son of Shammuah, the son of Galal, the son of Jedethon. Why does Mattaniah get his name put in chapter 7 for one reason. He was the principal, he was the first, in the offering of the prayer of thanksgiving. If you could go to Mattaniah, and this is the only time he's ever mentioned in Scripture, and you said, Mattaniah, why did your name get mentioned in the book of Nehemiah? He would say something like, because I opened the thanksgiving service in prayer. And you and I would be prone to think, that's all that you did? That's all that I did. But to us, something that is insignificant to God is incredibly significant. And what may not count to us counts much to God. And you could talk to Aqab the gatekeeper or Aqab the priest. And they would say the same. I had a role and I did my job. You might talk to Hanani and Hananiah and Nehemiah and you would quicker recognize their name than you would Talmud. But they are all equally responsible for the work of God being completed. Equally responsible for the blessing of God on the city of Jerusalem. It is impossible for us to miss the connection between this ancient city and today's local church. It takes everybody. I know where those stage lights are aimed. But I am also very much aware that the work of God takes more than what happens right here. And I am very aware that on a Sunday like this, with multiple services, that the building is cleaned many times. I know that chairs are moved and signs are moved and the nursery is staffed. I know that junior church started up, and I know that equipment must begin, and I know that the lights have to be turned on, and stories have to be told, and parking places have to be readied, and doors have to be locked, and I'm saying to you, without everybody doing their job, and without everybody fulfilling their responsibility, the work of God ceases to be as God intends it to be. It takes everybody. And though we might wonder, what do I do that is noteworthy? What do I accomplish that is significant? I would say to you, the only thing that we do in our lives that is worthwhile is that which matters to God. You see, our lives here are short, and I'm not the smartest guy, but I do know that eternity is long. And I can't help but think in a different vein of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, who was poor and was a beggar and was miserable in his earthly existence, and the rich man who who ate lavishly and lived in luxury and comfort, when we get a glimpse of them in eternity, the rich man is begging for just a drop of water so that he might be comforted, and the answer from heaven comes back. In effect, while you were in this life, you were comforted, and Lazarus, he dealt with misery. But now for all of eternity, Lazarus will be comforted and you will dwell in torment. And I assure you of this, Lazarus would not trade. Because eternity is longer than this life. And we should assess how we are living our lives. And we should orient ourselves in such a way that we are doing what matters to God. And too many people are failing in that. Too many people are busy about making another buck or playing another game and they've taken their eyes off the fact that the things that matter to God are not noteworthy in this world, but they are noteworthy. Do you realize that most of the things that you and I do in this life that are worthwhile, they will not be recognized on this earth? But the fact is, the things that we do in this life that are worthwhile, though they might not be recognized on this earth, I know for certain God doesn't overlook one of them. And too many places are built in such a way that only a few people and only a few posts matter, but that's not how God sees things. That's not how God looks at it. Everybody is equally important in the eyes of God. I think of our church. We're just a small assembly meeting south of Charlotte in North Carolina. But if you look back far enough into our history, you will see that there were some people who had to meet in a park building being pastored by a 27-year-old pastor who knew nothing at all. And there were some people who were willing to go on faith into a daycare facility that on Wednesday nights smelled like diapers and Papa John's pizza. And that's just a fact and carry chairs and set up, and then a group of people who on faith bought 10 acres, and then a group of people who on faith went to church in a middle school gymnasium that had blowers on the side that blew so loud you had trouble hearing, and it was the greatest stretch of growth for our church when no one could hear the preaching. I don't understand that. And people would set up nurseries. Sometimes it was in a hallway and sometimes it was in a classroom and sometimes we'd have to switch to another room because they would redo the gym floor and it would smell... And sometimes we'd have to move our midweek service to a Tuesday night and we'd have to drive to other facilities. And sometimes we'd cram hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people into an 11,000 square foot building where we had to sit on each other's laps and park across the street. And sometimes there was a group of people who stepped out on faith and built a second building that will be woefully too small and tremendously too expensive. But what I'm getting at is this. All along the way, it requires people who are doing what God asks them to do. And without somebody in the parking lot, and somebody at the door, and somebody willing to usher, and somebody willing to give, and somebody willing to tell a story, and somebody willing to run a vacuum, and somebody willing to turn lights on, and somebody willing to teach the word, all of it grinds to a halt. And I think ultimately what I'm driving at is, we need you, and you need us. And this corresponds beautifully to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and to Romans chapter 16, where the Apostle Paul basically says, All of my ministry was enabled by people you don't know. You know my name and you've read my letters, but you have forgotten about all of these individuals who stuck their necks out and did the work of God. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we're told, listen, we're many members, but we're one body. And some of the body parts may be uncomely and some may not be as noticeable, but it takes everybody. And I'd say to you, a lot of churches struggle because too many people don't do anything at all. And what we learn from Nehemiah chapter 7, as the credits are rolling, is this. God knows your name. And what you are doing matters greatly to God. Jim Elliott, who died at 28 years old for the gospel, wrote this in his diary. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. And if you believe to be the will of God, that you are here for however many years God has you on this earth, live it to the hilt for Him. Because I'm telling you, eternity is long and this life is short. And we are far too wrapped up in stuff that doesn't matter. And we are far too wrapped up in things that aren't worthwhile. And I'm not saying what is worthwhile and what matters you can glean from this world. I am saying you go back to the scriptures and you comprehend this. You have no idea who Harif is. But God does. And you wouldn't know who Mattaniah was. He was just the guy who opened in prayer at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. But God cared enough to write his name down twice. And I'm saying to you, there's two guys named Acab. One a gatekeeper and one a priest. And we may not know the difference. It's the same spelling. It's the same name. And we don't know either of them. But God does. And God cared that they did their job while they were here for Him. And at this moment in time, they are in the presence of God in heaven and have been so for thousands of years. Reaping the benefit and the reward for the fact that they were faithful here. And maybe somebody was just gifted to give. And they're important too. And others set aside and changed their entire life to come be a part of building something up. And they matter too. And name after name after name after name that we fly over in our Bible reading, God says, I haven't missed one thing they've done. Even if it was a cup of cold water, I noticed it. Have you ever taken that thought and drawn the correlation to the Lamb's book of life? Because the Bible tells us as Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter, chapter 10 and verse 20, rejoice. Why would I rejoice? Because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, it's called the book of life. And then in Revelation 21 and 27, we read this, the only ones that get into heaven are the people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do I get my name written in the Lamb's book of life? You understand that you are a sinner that God loves. And your sin has condemned you to an eternity in hell, but God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who lived sinlessly and then willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice and a substitute for sinners like you and me, and if we will place our faith in the finished work that Jesus Christ has done for salvation, if we will confess our sins and call out unto him for mercy, he will save us, and our names will be written down in the Lamb's book of life. And know this, when God writes somebody's name down, it never gets erased. And there will come a day where your name better be in the book of life, where your name better be written in heaven so that you can get in. And then make note of this. If we have all these chapters in the Bible with people's names, and we're even told that we're supposed to rejoice if our name is written in heaven, should we not concern ourselves with, with this life? Are we not spiritually mature enough to pause and say, what am I actually doing then that's being written down by God? Because I can make more money, perhaps. I can play another game, perhaps. But all of this life culminates in eternity. And I want to know, what am I doing that actually matters? Would you please bow your heads for just a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, Head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is GracewayCharlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.